Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. With the U.S. presidential election just around the corner, the question quickly becomes, what does the outcome mean for Canada? As a thought experiment, the Institute sat down with two prominent political and economic thinkers, Christopher Sands of the Wilson Center, and former communications director to Prime Minister Paul Martin and television gadfly, Scott Reed of Festchuck Reed. The thought experiment asked them to think ahead to the day after election day and what a win by each of the candidates means for Canada. In this episode, I began by stating, Joe Biden has won. Now what? <laughs> well, I think what most Canadians expect is a kind of return to normal. He's an old hand. He's been around Washington almost 50 years. He's a centrist, a moderate. Uh, and having served on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, his foreign policy and his approach to Canada are well known. He was the U.S. representative at the Vancouver Olympics in 2010 and traveled to Vancouver. Uh, he's had a chance to be to Ottawa. He's met with Justin Trudeau already. So in some ways, it'll be turnkey for Joe Biden uh, coming in and kind of putting some of the, the rougher uh, disruptive moments of the Trump era uh, straight into the rearview mirror. But Scott, does a Biden win immediately unwind the damage done to relations with Canada? No, but it will uh, inspire a new sense of hope uh, and uh, a desire and a hope and a thought that there will be an, um, a restart to relations and that what, what's occurred for four years can be regarded as a temporary aberration as opposed to a uh, fundamental shift, of course. So, And I, I think the most interesting thing about a Biden administration from the perspective of Canada is going to be where will things not change? Um, you know, that we know that uh, all the things that Chris said, like we know that he's going to be a more uh, normal president. We know we're going to get an administration that makes decisions more or less based on rationality. But where will uh, tensions not dissipate immediately? So, for example, it seems to me that the trilateral relationship, which is hyper complicated because of Ms. Meng, that that trilateral relationship between Canada, the United States and China, that's going to remain complicated. That's going to take uh, some work. It isn't like Joe Biden's going to say, you know what? All right, let's just... Uh, Let's, let's slam the basketball. She's back to China and this thing is over. On the other hand, perhaps there's an opportunity, you know, to eliminate, uh, like I said before, the irrational elements of, of the relationship and the tensions between Canada and the United States that have emerged as a consequence of um, Hmong, the two Michaels, and trade relations writ large. Scott's exactly right. China is going to be um, locked in confrontation with the United States for a while. You you would know that just by talking to members of Congress. This is a broad bipartisan consensus that China's peaceful rise cannot be assumed, and some of their behaviors, which go outside the the bounds of, of what we would consider to be you know fair, such as expansion of the South China Sea, such as corporate espionage, intellectual property theft, have to be responded to. And you look around the world, the U.S. can do this. Many of our allies, including Canada, um, are basically on side with this. They're just worried about the conflict. But the U.S. is big enough to take that on. I think a lot of Republicans and Democrats agree. Um, another thing on which we agree, and I, I have to say, I think a lot of times our bipartisan consensus is missed because of all the noise of the Trump era is on trade policy and not just on china but usmca when we passed the trade agreement that they call kuzma in canada the united states mexico canada agreement uh, 
it won bipartisan support in the U.S. House and Senate in the Congress, um, more bipartisan support than NAFTA, but even more bipartisan support and bigger majorities than we had for Canada-U.S. free trade. And I think that signals that the U.S. trade policy um, has a new center, and that is that we're all for market access where we're competitive and strong, and we want to protect our declining industries. Now, that's what most countries do. It's only a, a surprise because the U.S. used to speak about trade in terms of big principles. Like we were for free trade even if it hurt us. That seems to have shifted under Trump, and I don't see a Biden administration changing that. But a Biden administration would also take aim at Keystone XL. He's been on the record as being uh, against it. So we're, it's not all going to be sweetness and light as far as the trade file is over in Ottawa. What does it mean for Alberta? I actually think that Joe Biden could be very good for Alberta for two reasons. First of all, on infrastructure. The, during the campaign, Joe Biden said that he would revisit the, the presidential permit that uh, was granted by the Trump administration for the Keystone XL pipeline. But it's a construction permit, not an operating permit. And the segment of that pipeline that crosses the Canada-US border, which is the only place that the presidential permit applies, has been built. So I think that's somewhat of an empty threat. That means that Canada, although you'll still have some court cases, Canada's in line to gaining access to the US Gulf, as well because of TMX moving on, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, having additional access to the Pacific. That could finally break Canada out of the jam that Canada's been in, where the U.S. is its only market, and give access to global markets, which will help because the U.S. Has, has taken a discount on Canadian oil for a long time, and this could get Canada world market price. Um, but second, because Joe Biden has, has also talked about the importance of addressing climate change and raised questions about eliminating uh, hydrofracturing, fracking, certainly on federal lands, possibly elsewhere, that's also good news. Because what that will do is lower U.S. production, which could once again give Canada access to an expanded U.S. market for some of its products. Canada will be there to pick up the pieces, and of all the U.S. suppliers abroad, Canada's the most friendly and reliable. Um, so I think that that's a huge opportunity. And then in a third area, this is less Alberta, because Joe Biden is going to try to tackle climate change seriously, um, I think that from his centrist point of view, things like hydroelectricity from Canada, whether we're talking about Hydro-Quebec electricity getting to Massachusetts through that connector they're building in Maine, or uh, more electricity coming through the Columbia River Treaty being finalized out west, or from Manitoba Hydro, which also has spare capacity, I think that's potentially a very big opportunity for Canada. And lastly, um, the Midwest of the United States which was crucial for Trump, but also crucial for Biden, those states are the most energy consuming without an energy supply that's handy. And if you take away natural gas from Marcellus, they're gonna need a lot of energy. That's why so much of Canada's oil sands energy goes to Chicago and to refineries there. This is a huge opportunity for small modular nuclear reactors. And Atomic Energy of Canada Limited has some great designs. Ontario Power Generation is using them in the field. There's a real opportunity for a sort of nuclear revival. And this is where I think Biden is a useful middle grounder. He does share the desire to act on climate change, but unlike some of his 
fellow party members who are more signed on to a Green New Deal. He's open to pragmatic solutions that might get the job done quickly and efficiently. And this is something I know a lot of people have struggled with in terms of climate change. Why can't we do nuclear if it's if it's small and safe? Why can't we do hydroelectric? And I think in both of those areas, the, the centrism of Biden will be good news. So uh, I just want to echo two of those things and then add a... Um uh, a broader, less sophisticated thought, because that's really going to be my specialty here. Um, <laughs> the point about small nuclear, uh, small modular nuclear uh, power generation, I think, is really, uh, really important. I don't know. I can't gaze into the future, um, and, w- and maybe a ten-year track to see if we can make that uh, a, a real uh, industry and a real portion of the energy mix but i think the potential is there and i think that smart people think the potential is there and i think that that is a potential opportunity for canada where we have a relative advantage and we ought to try to press it and that should be a priority in terms of bilateral relations because if anything is going to give that 10-year horizon uh, a real boost it would be the endorsement of u.s energy policy Uh, second i'll go back to something christopher said earlier you know to my mind the even if it is even if Biden doesn't break his commitments, and sometimes, just want to like remind you, sometimes presidents do. Sometimes politicians roll back things after campaigns. But even if he only limits his policy on fracking to federal lands and doesn't extend it beyond that, doesn't feel pushed by um, uh, by Democrats in Congress to go even harder, if he just limits us to federal lands, that is an opportunity in terms of energy sources, uh, energy demand rather, uh, that... that um, that opens doors uh, for Alberta. The, the final point I would make, though, uh, is that this is an opportunity for Alberta, I believe, and I, I think it's a national challenge, not just an Alberta challenge, but I think it's that the challenge of not objecting falls first to the premier of Alberta. Um, I think there's an opportunity to say, let's get a North American transition plan uh, moving here. Because if you listen to Biden, uh, particularly after he kind of bobbed and weaved over the course of the last six, seven months in terms of where he stood on fracking, where he stood on energy policy, where he landed in the last presidential debate as an example was, look, we're going to shut it down on, on, on federal lands, but we want a transition process. We have to address... Um, climate change, but we need to do it in a rational way. He was the epitome of what you expect Joe Biden to be, a centrist, a moderate, practical and pragmatic. And that means there's lots of opportunity for lots of uh, collaboration, work together, try to find solutions. And to me, that's also the remedy for Alberta. Because if Alberta's position, if Jason Kenney just says, listen, right, we're just going to ride the oil industry as it was in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, and try to imagine that that's going to sustain for the next 50 years, that's a losing hand. But if he says, aha, now we have a president and a North American space where we can look at at a reasonable range of peers like a 15, 20 year range of transition. We can be part of that. We can alter our mix. We can take advantage. We can turn to Ottawa now and say, look, it's going to take time. So you need guys need to help us in the way the federal government's helped the East Coast fishery a decade or a generation ago. Then I think there's lots of opportunity to do lots of exciting things. And Biden doesn't have to be uh, something that scares us because the one thing you'll hear all the time is, well, even if Biden wins, you know, we still got a big problem when it comes to uh, um, Keystone. And the, the truth may work out to be a lot more promising and a lot more nuanced than that. Well, even further, does Biden need to reclaim the Senate and retain the House to get anything accomplished? Of all the institutions in the U.S., um, it's the one to watch in the next few years. We heard this during the Obama administration. We heard this during the Trump administration. Members of Congress really beginning to 
grapple with the fact that uh, they're probably the most unpopular institution in the United States. I mean, their polling was in single digits for, for decades. And one of the things that you saw Chuck Grassley, for example, senator from Iowa, point out was that he felt strongly that um, the Congress had written too many blank checks. Uh, the presidential permit process, which was designed to put the president on the hook to make sure infrastructure had no national security downside, uh, but had no process attached to it. It was just, you should do this however you see fit. Well, when Obama needed to figure out a way to slow down Keystone, there it was, and it was a blank check. And so he, he wrote it to himself, and he was able to stop the, the pipeline. Similarly, uh, when Congress put together the 1962 Trade Expansion Act with Section 232 for national security threats, they were thinking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. They were thinking we might need to do something, not that we would put national security tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum. So Congress, as it looks at its dilemma, is beginning to realize it's going to have to pull in the reins a little bit more. Um, and I think that's significant. There's another significant thing uh, with Congress. It, we. We have a number. We have a problem across the U.S. that too many baby boomers are hanging on for too long. <laughs> now we love baby boomers; they are wonderful people. But it's not just that we just had a presidential election between seven, two seventy-year-olds. It's that Nancy Pelosi is pushing eighty. It's that Mitch McConnell's quite old. And the biggest cohort in the American electorate today are millennials. They want a different kind of politics, and they've been so frustrated. One of the reasons that their turnout has has been, you know, not what it could have been in the last several election cycles, is they just don't see this politics responding to the way they see issues. And I think it's much more of a common ground trade-off. You saw this a little bit in the late uh, Trump administration since we were talking about energy. You know, they want action on climate change, but they're not about running every coal miner or producer into unemployment. Like a balanced approach that takes human costs as well as planetary objectives together and work something out. I think is the kind of thing that millennials have been waiting for. And in the next four years, you're going to start to see millennials and Generation Xers moving into committee chairmanships, getting more attention because the future really belongs to them. I guarantee you in 2024, we won't have this slate of elderly people running the country. It'll be fresh faces. And I, I think one of the exciting things now is to look at who they are, watch them start to emerge and get a sense of what the future of American politics is going to start to look like. Scott, what do you think of that? Or does your Gen X apathy tell you that you don't really care? <laughs> That's right. Sorry. I'm just going to buy on some Nirvana records. You guys call me when it sorted itself out. I'm sorry. He's opened a door now to a favorite um, a favorite point of mine about Canada-U.S. relations. So I'm going to sort of soliloquize for a, a moment. I, I mean, I, I, I think the most interesting political question about a Biden administration is who's going to matter? Who's going to be the strong man, the strong woman? Who are going to be the driving forces of this? Because I, I assume that you know Nancy Pelosi knows how to uh, how to play poker, right? and she's proven that over the course of decades. You know, Joe Biden, if he wants to be the kind of you know bring people together, moderate, uh, he, that's his. But ultimately, tough decisions tough moves need to be made and who's going to be the power and 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 there's a pejorative aspect of what i'm saying that picks up on what chris was saying which is that he's old man like the president of the united states is old and i'm not convinced that he has buckets and buckets of energy and so who's his chief of staff going to be who are the cabinet members that are going to matter a lot what about congressional leadership who's going to matter in this administration who's going to drive it everyone says oh well keep your eye on kamala because you know she's the vice president she'll be the next nominee and all that sort of stuff that's all true 
But I'm telling you right now, based on my experience in politics and based on my experience in politics and dealing with the White House, it isn't who sits in the vice president's office for this next two years that's going to really uh, drive things necessarily. It's who sits outside of the Oval. Who is the chief of staff going to be? How is that political agenda going to be shaped and formed? And I don't think it's necessarily Biden that's going to drive that. And I'm super and I don't know who, what the answer is. I don't know who's going to drive it. But we're going to get clues when he picks a senior staff, and that's going to matter. So then let's lean further on to your, your political bents. What does a Biden win mean in Canada? Does it silence Canada's Trump wannabes? Does a Trump loss tell the world strongman populism has failed? Well, no, I don't think it tells us that. I think there's plenty of opportunity for populism still, unfortunately. And, 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 and let me put it this way, plenty of room still for unthinking BSing populism, which is what I would call Trump populism, or at least one way I would try to describe it. And you know, there will be people who will try to inherit that portion of the party in the Republican Party. They're gonna, they're gonna have a bloodbath, man. It's gonna be an absolute UFC match in the, in the GOP for the next year or two as they decide whether they wish to go back to being, um, you know, your grandpa's uh, Republicans, you know, with the Mitt Romneys of the world and that sort of stuff. Sort of a Reaganism thing. Yeah, and you know, for lack of a better phrase, I and mean, I, I think sometimes we use Reagan now as a label that we stretch across a pretty wide political spectrum. But mm -hmm. let's call it that in the sense that it's traditionally acceptable and understandable to us as compared to what we've witnessed. But there's going to be people like Mike Pompeo, who was out there, you know, uh, campaigning in a way that was inappropriate. Why? Because he wishes to inherit the mantle of that. Uh, Donald Jr. as you know, insane as that sounds. is going to be. So what's going to happen out there? That populism isn't going to go away. It's not going to go away in Canada. But it's it's taken a heavy, heavy body blow and the limits of it and the limits of its utility have taken a body blow. And I think there's a huge chance for um, moderate um, pragmatic politics to really uh, reassert itself, which, by the way, is therefore like, you know, you know, Hillary Clinton in 2016 had a job and that was to show that that guy wasn't going to succeed and she failed uh, and I'm a fan but she failed in that job Biden now has a job Biden has a job now to stamp that stuff out and to say you know now we have a different yes Ken Dryden what his favorite Stanley Cup was when he won what's that? Ken Dryden will tell you it was when they beat the Philadelphia Flyers because it wasn't just that they won the Stanley Cup it wasn't just that they beat those guys it was that they said you know what there's a better fashion of hockey to play don't do that broad street bully stuff don't be that that dumb, stupid populism appeal to people's basis in, base instincts, right? Be the Habs, be fire wagon hockey. And that's what Biden's got to do now. He's got to show that that better fashion is a uh, more likely way to succeed in politics and government. One of the things that Trump did was he became the center of all of our attention. So we focused so much on Republicans. But I think what Scott's talking about is true for Democrats as well. The U.S. is going through, with its big tent parties, one of those periodic transitions where the parties and their bases are realigning or could potentially realign. Start, I'll start with the Republicans because Scott did. I, I think Trump has offered the Republican Party a vision of how they survive. A uh, few cycles back, uh, there was this whole discussion about the future of the United States as a country where a majority of the voters are part of minority groups, whether Hispanics, African-Americans, and others, and that in that future, Democrats would be the natural governing party of the 21st century because most of those groups are, are allied with and courted by the Democrats. I think that idea shook up a lot of Republicans, and Trump's answer was, we can become the party of the blue-collar worker, 
the Democrats aren't courting unions the way they did. We'll be a populist, socially conservative, nationalist, patriotic party that has potential. And we don't need the country club Republicans of the Mitt Romney variety. We need people who really get uh, NASCAR and the street. Uh, on the other hand, the Democrats, the moderate Democrats, including Joe Biden, are, are pretty weak tea compared to some of the impatient and more radical members sort of on the edge of progressivism who want climate change action now, social justice now, real change in U.S. society on a, on a broad basis. And the challenge for Biden is going to be he's at the head of a party that's impatient. We don't expect that Joe Biden's going to run again. And so they have one term for eight years under Obama. Obama said all the right things. But for many of these people, he didn't deliver enough because they wanted so much. And so they're going to press him not to govern from the center, but to govern from the left and make the most of this moment. So both parties, I think, are, are engaged in a debate about who they really are and who they're going to be. And I agree with Scott. Biden has the potential to be decisive and have a huge legacy in forging a Democratic Party that has the middle, as well as the progressive side, and that could be the part of the future. But both parties are going to struggle, I think. Scott, last word to you. What's going on in the PMO with a Biden win? Well, a huge exhale of relief, largely just be, for the obvious reason uh, that there there will be a, a rational set of rules now and you won't agree on everything you'll have friction points on many spots but at least now you'll be able to deal with a predictable player on the other side of the table prior to this you know people were like okay well you know if i if i say the wrong thing if i smile the wrong way if i stand too tall in the photograph does uh, that trigger some kind of uh, bizarre middle school insecurity and the next thing you know aluminum tariffs are uh, slashed onto us so i mean it's it's I think there's a big relief about that. And then I think there's a huge desire. And this is where I think, I know if I was working the PMO, I'd be saying kind of what I said 10 minutes ago, who's going to matter? Like my, my, the thing I would be asking senior officials, the thing I would be asking the post in Washington, I'd be saying, guys, who's going to matter in this? So who do we need to know who's going to matter? And that work has probably almost certainly begun already, but that's, uh, that's what they're thinking. They're thinking about where the, uh, where the strings that uh, are going to need pulling are going to be. Scott Reed is a former communications director to the PMO and a principal at Festchuck Reed. Christopher Sands is a C.D. Howe Fellow and the director of the Wilson Center's Canada Institute. In our next episode of this thought experiment, Donald Trump has won. Now what? I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.